Welcome to the podcast of San Diego First Church of the Nazarene. This is the podcast for this Sunday, September 19th, 2021. My name is Dee Kelly, and it is a privilege to dig into the scripture readings this morning. Before I do so, I just would like to um, take a moment and tell a story of an experience of mine this past week. It actually is an experience that goes back several decades um, with a young man by the name of Duane. He was a teen in the youth group I pastored back in Illinois. He, of course, grew up. He became a commercial airlines pilot. And through his friendship with a person by the name of Lauren Gresham, uh, who at the time was president of Southern Nazarene University, and their common interest in flying was part of what brought about that friendship. Well, Duane played a key role in helping me obtain employment at that school, a position I held for 13 years. Well, this last spring, Duane contracted COVID. Because he contracted COVID back in the spring, when the vaccine became available, he decided he didn't need to get the vaccine. A couple weeks ago, Duane contracted COVID again. And last weekend, at the age of 49, Duane passed away. Now, I don't recommend making decisions on isolated stories. And I realize that there are legitimate reasons for hesitating to be vaccinated. But if you can, I encourage you by your own free choice to do so. Well, having said that, let me shift back into the nature of our reading this morning. One of the characteristics of our three-month experiment with double services is that some Sundays I speak in both services. This particular Sunday is one of those. I hope and encourage that if you can come join us on a Sunday morning, you would know that we have two services meeting at 1030, one in the Ellipse Chapel and one in the larger worship center, often referred to as Brown. Um, One a little bit more classic in its musical tone and one a bit more contemporary in its musical tone. We hope someday you might consider joining us, but if not, continue to join us on this podcast. Well, the scripture this morning comes from the book of James. Portions of chapter 3 and 4 are included in this reading. We have come out of a three-week series on the wisdom literature of the Bible. We're in both the Song of Songs and the Book of Proverbs. Today we launch into a series on the five chapters in the Book of James. In some ways, this is actually the perfect continuation of the wisdom literature because James is really a New Testament book of wisdom. The ancient nature of wisdom literature just strikes me. We are reading literature in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that are comprised of sayings and advice and things that have been passed on from generation to generation. And this advice is thousands of years old. Thousands of years old. Which says to me that human nature has a real consistency to it because the wisdom that is given in these ancient texts 
seems so very relevant to us today. But I will also say that the canon of Scripture, the collection of Scripture that we have, doesn't hide from differences in theology. There are things that James writes about that seems to push against other sections of Scripture that have a slightly different take on our theological heritage. And Scripture doesn't try to pretend otherwise. It doesn't try and tie up every loose end or make um, every difference disappear. Instead, it celebrates that we are humans on this journey together. And though there are so many great similarities that are consistent in us through generations, there are also different perspectives, different experiences, different times, different cultures that lead to different ways of saying something about this journey of faith that we are on. Well, as I said, James is a New Testament book of wisdom. What about James? Who is James? Well, we believe that the James to, uh, to whom this particular book is attributed is the brother of Jesus. We have several James Jameses listed in Scripture. There are James and John, the sons of thunder, uh, the sons of Zebedee. They are disciples, and they are referenced very often in the Gospels. There is James, the son of Alphaeus. There is James, the father of Judas. Not Judas Iscariot, but the other Judas. And then there is the brother of James. Maybe a son of Joseph by a previous marriage before Mary. He could probably be called uh, the son of practice. We guess that he is the oldest of the children, the responsible one. James simply says that our faith should have a look to it. It should express itself in action. Not too unusual for an eldest to feel that way. I think that this book is exemplified by one of my favorite verses in James. James chapter 1, verse 22, where it says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. For James, faith called us into being and living in particular ways. And if our life didn't exhibit an evidence of our faith, then he questions our faith. This apparently didn't sit very well with Martin Luther. Martin Luther was not much of a fan of this book. Martin Luther convinced that salvation was by grace alone. I don't know that James contradicts that, but James simply says that if we have faith, it should look like something that resembles the kingdom of God. Well, there are a few passages that refer to James, a little bit of the history that we know. Acts 1.14, um, James is not necessarily included by name, but is included among the brothers of Jesus who were there at the time of the ascension and joined with the other believers 
in prayer, awaiting the promise that had come through Jesus to the followers. We also find Paul writing about James in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7. Paul says that after Jesus had appeared to more than 500 people, he appeared to James and then appeared to Paul. So James was a firsthand witness to the things that took place. And he became a significant leader in the early church. His ministry was really primarily to the Jewish community what's sometimes referred to as the diaspora. And he cared deeply that this community would hold together. And you find in his writings a way by which we are to hold one another faithfully in community and not allow things to divide us. In that regard, it's a very powerful book in teaching us the ways in which we navigate community. There are some who would say um, that, that James was not particularly written by James, but by those who collected some of the teachings of James. One of the reasons that makes some sense is because it, it doesn't contain as many references as you might expect to Jesus. Now, that could just be evidence of a sibling um, not doing so, but more likely it is a group of people who had been under James's teaching and were simply gathering together some of the most important teachings that they'd heard under his ministry and preserving them for the community to have as they navigated their journey in the future and the various things that they were either currently facing or would come to face in the future. Well, here's the passage, James chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Well, show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness, born of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boastful and false to the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish, for where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable and gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace beginning of chapter 4. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something, and you do not have it, so you commit murder. You covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask, and when you ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend it in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is for nothing that the scripture says, 
God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives all the more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Well, this passage speaks about conflicts, disputes. It is evidence of struggle that the community might have when they are not getting what they want. Well, back in the mid-70s, you may be familiar with some of the work that brought to light um, conflict management styles. Thomas and Kilman were two authors that worked hard in this area. And as a result, we have a model that continues to be used in all kinds of settings to this day. It is, in some ways, a modern effort at adding to wisdom literature. How do we operate in the midst of conflict? Well, I'd like to give you a brief background to this model and then take you back into James because James goes so much further in depth and teaches us things that we often overlook when we talk about the way in which we deal with conflict. Thomas and Kilman proposed five different ways by which conflict might be managed or dealt with. And these styles relate to two different things. One is how important are the relationships that we have and how much do we tend to protect those relationships. The other is how important is the task that needs to be done and how much do we want to get this task accomplished. And so, there are five different styles. The first one mentioned is the avoiding style. It's when somebody just does not like conflict at all, walks away from it, pretends it isn't there, ignores it, gives no attention to the people that are involved with the task. Once it's discovered that there's something that's conflictual, they kind of put their heads in the sand and just don't pay attention. Um, another style is someone who doesn't like conflict but values people very much. And so when there is an issue that raises conflict, they care so much about the relationship and believe that the task is less important than the people. And so they will accommodate the viewpoints of others. It is a way of nurturing relationships but avoiding the urgent needs of the task. There is an approach that is called competing. Competing is when I value or I believe that the task is so very important and relationships don't matter a whole lot. So I'm gonna push very hard to get this done, to get it done the way I think it ought to be done and to get it done well. Regardless of the people that I might hurt in the process, this task is so important, I'm going to get it done. It's called a competing approach. There is a compromise approach we would try and give and take a little bit. Give and take with the people that are involved, a little bit of what they want out of the journey, a little bit of what we want out of the journey, a little bit of this give and take that allows both people to get something and both people to lose something. It's called a compromise. And then there is what is often touted as the ideal approach, and that's a collaborative approach to conflict. 
And that's where we try and work together to come up with a creative solution that takes care of the tasks and takes care of our differences in, as individuals. And we come up with a solution that is actually better than either of us thought of because we've worked together. That sounds like it's the ideal approach in all cases. The problem is, is that it takes a lot of time and sometimes we don't have time as a resource. Sometimes the issue is so urgent, it has to get done right away. Sometimes the risk is so high that we can't worry about people's feelings. A brain surgery might be something like that, where one person has to take charge and move forward and make the call because time is of the essence. Or getting out of a burning building, somebody declares what it is that needs to be done and doesn't wait around for some compromise, some collaborative effort. Time is of the essence and we've got to take care of it right now. Sometimes accommodating is the right choice. Accommodating somebody else in situations where the task may not matter as much or when there are multiple solutions and any one of a number of solutions will get us to where we want to go. So why not accommodate somebody else's ideas or interests? Sometimes avoidance can be a right call. Avoidance can be a right call if it's really a non-issue to you. That the conflict is not worth it and the task does not mean that much to those who are involved. And so let's just avoid the conflict, go a different direction. I say all of that to say that even though collaboration sounds like a wonderful approach, there are times when it can be a waste of time to spend that much effort on collaboration when the issues are not that important. Well, work and research has been done on these five management styles over the years. And we have discovered that there are gender norms that might affect a person's natural style. There are personality styles that might affect the way in which you deal with conflict. There are circumstances, time, cost, risk, all of which might affect how somebody engages. All of that is background to say that this model, though I think is incredibly useful and helps us deal with issues wisely and with great awareness, it doesn't get to the underlying issues that often complicate conflict. James does this in an incredible way. James says, aren't the conflicts, the fights, the quarrels, aren't they just a reflection of the battles that are happening within you? It is profoundly beautiful how James says, so often the outward conflicts are just an image of what's already happening inside of your heart. And then he lists some very specific things. He says, could it not be that it's your covetousness? It's your envy? It's your jealousy? It's your desire to use things for yourself, your selfish ambition? He nails it that so often conflict arises from the selfishness within us 
that sees something in someone else and we either want it or we want to defeat it or we want to get our way or we want to win and those things lead to quarrels. Well, what rests behind that? James goes even deeper. He says, you adulterous crowd. Now, he's not saying that because they're all having affairs with other people's spouses. He is saying it because he's saying that we are having an affair with the world. That we have bought into the world's system of what's important, what's valuable, what helps us survive. We have bought into what makes us worth something. And James is saying, as soon as you do that, you've turned your back on God's system and God's love for you. James is saying that our heart is deceitful, full of envy and jealousy. But if we will surrender to God's spirit, and God longs for our spirit to be consistent and connected to God's spirit. God is passionate about that. And the reason God is a jealous God is because God wants God's best for us. That we won't fall into the trap set by the world system that leads us to jealousies, envy, and strife that results in quarrels and conflict that we try and manage through management styles when if first we would deal with the core of the problem, so many conflicts would be avoided. And it's this, that we long for more of God. We long for more of Jesus. It's in the midst of this that I have uh, been reminded of a song that was made popular by Fernando Ortega and Jeremy Camp, but actually it was drawn from a beautiful old Negro spiritual. Give me Jesus, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, just give me Jesus. Such a powerful song, often spoken out of deep, profound struggle, or hurt, or loss, or grief. But it is in those moments that we often realize what is it that is so important? Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. So this morning, I invite you to hear the work and words of James spoken through God's Spirit that so often behind quarrels, behind conflict, is a heart that's divided, a heart that simply needs to be reminded that we belong to God. God knows us best. God loves us most. And if we will turn our eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Oh, give me Jesus.
God, our creator, our wonderful guide and redeemer, our friend. This morning, may we try not manage our conflicts, but Lord, help us to surrender to you. Help us before we simply attempt to manage our quarrels. May we turn inward and say, is this by chance just a reflection of the battle that's inside me? So may our prayer be, give us more of you, O Lord. Give us the courage to pray. You can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. And Lord, our experience tells us that we enjoy the blessings so much more. The color, the depth, the music, the dance of this world when we have you. So for those of us, Lord, that have struggled with the courage to simply say yes to your will and to your way, Lord, we want to be yours. Give us that courage this day. Help us to surrender our lives to you as Lord and Savior. And may we not just individually, but as a community say, give me Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Now may God's peace be with you. May God's spirit fill you. And may this week be filled with a, God, with a peace that comes from God, born out of Jesus, born in us. So go in God's peace. God bless you.